Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Friends, this is Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for choosing to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open. But thanks so much for being with us and enjoy the broadcast. Sounds rather presidential, doesn't it, friends? Well, that's a clue to what we're going to be talking about this hour. Hello and welcome to In the Market. I am your host, Janet Parshall. All right, if you love history, if you love America, if you love the Constitution, this next hour is going to be rich for you. We are going to talk about one of the newest politically incorrect guides. We call them pig books around our house. Just love these books. They cover a myriad of topics. And this one in particular caught my attention. It's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents from Wilson to Obama. All right, so that's got American history. It has a whole lot of the Constitution in it. And it's about the people who have occupied what some might say is the highest off in the land. And just that verbiage now for me personally, is going to have to be changed after reading what Dr. Stephen Hayward has written in his book. Boy, what a wake-up call and what a history lesson. And you're going to be the wiser when this hour is over. Dr. Hayward, by the way, is a fellow in law and economics at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. And he's also the Thomas Smith Distinguishing, Distinguished Visiting Professor at Ashland University. And he is a man whose works are much sought after, by the way. I have read him in the National Review. I've read him in the American Spectator, the Weekly Standard, and the list goes on and on and on. Dr. Hayward, absolutely fascinating book. And I have to tell you, took me completely by surprise and made me really rethink 
these three branches, and in particular the one known as the executive branch. Let me just ask you, what piqued your interest? I mean, you've written a lot. You've written about presidents. You've written about Jimmy Carter. You've written about Ronald Reagan. What in particular piqued your interest to write this pig guide? <laughs> well, thanks for all those kind words, Janet. Uh, uh, and it's great to be with you again because I'm, I'm a big fan of all your too, so I can return Thank the favor. Uh, well, <laughs> it, it, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question succinctly. I'll just pick one thread. And there's a lot of pretty good books about presidency around uh, from famous scholars that are widely read by students and by journalists and so forth. But there's an interesting thing. If you pick up a lot of the leading books on the presidency and you turn to the index, you will find that in several of them, about a single index entry for constitution, constitutionalism, uh, the Constitution has disappeared from a lot of these treatments of the presidency. I mean, most of these books, and some of them are quite good, like James David Barber or Richard Neustadt from Harvard, they taught the president of the United States as though it's just another kind of CEO job for a corporation, except in this case, the corporation is the American government. And it seems to me that's a really big missing you know, blank spot in the way we think about presidents. So that, that's why I undertook to write the book. Let me just tell you, first of all, I love history. And to read all of these little nuances about the presidents from Wilson to Obama, I thought were fascinating. And I'm going to ask in a bit why you started with Wilson. I know now, having right. read the book, but I want our <laughs> friends to know as well. Right. But I, I love your under, helping us understand the choice of the word president. Let's go back to the founders, because there is some rather interesting and it seems to me robust conversation about what the title of that office should be. And for a while, it wasn't even going to be the word president, was it? Uh, well, right. I mean, remember the, the time that the United States was uh, founded in 1776 and then in 1787 with the Constitution. Uh, you know, we were revolting in part against uh, a monarchy, right? We, you know, we didn't want to substitute an elected king for a hereditary king. And what we had in front of us was governors of states. And so there was thought, well, we should have a governor of the United States. Well, people weren't too happy with that idea. They thought that will just be, as I say, an elected king. So they picked president, and that term had not been used before then for a political office. And it derives from the Latin word meaning to preside. Well, you think today someone presides over what? Well, a committee or a group or you know, someone who's a, more of a facilitator. Maybe not quite a facilitator is maybe not the right word. But the point is not the uh, capital L leader that we've made the president into, starting with Wilson. And, and as you say, we'll get to all that. But uh, you know, the president was supposed to be a much more modest person who was supposed to be a defender of the Constitution and not someone who would trample on it, as too many modern presidents have done. I find it interesting. And while he might have had a rather prickly personality, I, I, my favorite founder is John Adams. And he had, right. which surprised me a bit, an unbelievably lofty title proposed for what the president should be, correct? Yeah, and it I almost do. sounded like he pulled it something out of uh, King George's courtroom. Yeah, you know, I can't quit. His excellencies, I forget now what it is. I don't have it committed to memory. It's in the book. <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember. But it was kind of ridiculous. It was some long. And, and uh, George Washington, to his credit, uh, said, no, I think that's a bit silly. Let's Let's just say president. And so there was, I think that's important for people to understand, particularly if we're talking about the pre-Wilson era. And again, folks, you're going to discover why that's a seminal shift there with Wilson. But they had been under the heavy hand of a monarchy. And so as they were helping to decide what this country should look like and what self-governance in the Americas should be like, they wanted to make sure, it seems to me, and I got this sense reading your book, that they wanted to stay as far away as they could from anything that cast a shadow toward a monarchy. Am I right? 
Yeah, well, no, that's absolutely right. You know, I mean, the point of not calling the president your excellency or one of those sort of royal-sounding titles is, although the president's very important and we want to honor the president, you know, we don't want to have these royal kind of practices. And we've actually kind of come close to that. But every once in a while, you will see a depiction of the British monarchy, which still today, like um, the Queen, for example, or mm-hmm. uh, I think that was a good example, that movie a couple of years ago about Queen Elizabeth. It's still the practice today in England that when the prime minister is done visiting the queen, he backs out of the room, you know, bowing to the queen so that the queen never sees uh, his back. I mean, that's just, I mean, it would be so foreign to Americans to do something like that. Uh, and, and the way I put it in the book is, and this is a trick of, president, of the presidency throughout history, but especially in modern times, is uh, the, the paradox of the presidency is we want to look up at our presidents but we don't want to feel like they're looking back down on us. Yes. And that's why sort of elitists like Al Gore and John Kerry, I think, fared poorly with the voters, and, and why Barack Obama's the problem here, because he certainly looks down on us. But, uh, but we elected him anyway. But usually candidates like that don't succeed. Or, or to put it another way, we, we want to put our presidents on a pedestal for sort of decent reasons, but we want to be able to look at them at eye level. And that's why the most successful presidents are always the ones who've been able to carry off that trick. To be uh, to identify and bond with the people like you know Ronald Reagan or Franklin Roosevelt to be bipartisan, uh, you were very good at that kind of thing. Um, and we're pre- and candidates who were terrible at that, who gave off their elitism like you know Michael Dukakis, John Kerry, we've mentioned Al Gore, usually do not win the election because people just say, "Ick, I don't I don't want to be ruled over by someone who looks like a king." Mm. And that is where some of the tension is, I think, today. People are wondering exactly what is the size of government. All right, I, I want to go back again to the relationship of the President of the United States, whoever that has been or will be in the future, and the constitutional directive to that individual. In fact, why there was so much as a directive that he take an oath. We have an interesting conversation about self-governance, the office, the presidency, And the report cards, yes, from Wilson to Obama, they've been graded in this latest Politically Incorrect Guide with Dr. Stephen Hayward. More after this. Visiting with Dr. Stephen Hayward, who's the author of the latest Politically Incorrect Guide, a series of books on a wide variety of topics. This one is about the presidents from Wilson to Obama. And this is a very important part for us to have in our conversation. It's very simple. It's not very long at all. Article 2, Section 1, Paragraph 8, if you're taking notes, and this will be on the test. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will do to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. This is the peg on which your entire book hangs, Stephen, because this is the president being told by the directive of the United States Constitution that he is to take an oath, or she someday perhaps will take an oath, to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Now, before you unpack that, just step back again to the founders. Here they were coming out of the shadow of the monarchy, believing that there needed to be the division of power. So they have three different branches. This whole idea that checks and balances was paramount. They knew what Lord Acton had said, and he was right. Power corrupts. Absolute power would corrupt. Absolutely. So they had to spread this around for this brilliant system of checks and balances. 
Why, then, did they have the foresight and why did they give the directive through the Constitution that whoever held that office had to, give an, had to make an oath or affirm that they would defend what was inherently in that Constitution? Right. Well, what, well that, that's a really big and uh, sweeping question. But a couple of thoughts, I think, to grab onto. One is, is that, uh, you know, the idea of the rule of law had been, you know, evolving there through the, you know, I don't know, from antiquity, but especially in the 18th century. And, you know, the phrase that the American founders seized upon was uh, a variant of the idea that we want the rule of law to replace the rule of men. Right? Uh, you know, the, the law is king, not, not the king is king. So, and and uh, the problem is, of course, is that humans have to run institutions and humans have to run a legal system. So you can't escape uh, the sad problem in a fallen world that human beings have to rule over other human beings. So how do you mm-hmm. limit that power to keep it from being abused? Uh, as you mentioned, Lord Acton's great axiom. Uh, and, and so they envisioned that the president would be the chief guardian of the Constitution. And they wanted the president to be reminded of that fact by swearing that solemn oath that they would protect and defend the Constitution. Uh, and that's why I decided, since so many other people who evaluate the presidency today sort of ignore that whole dimension of the president's duty, that it was time to go back to basics and say, let's take that oath seriously and try and construct a, uh, construct a yardstick to measure presidents against that oath. Mm-hmm. All right. So let me take it out of the philosophical, if I can put it that way, right. and put some skin on this. So he he or she takes this oath, says that he or she will uphold the Constitution of the United States. And some might say, and I'm playing the devil's advocate here. OK, well, the Constitution as it currently is. After all, when they were swearing an oath in Adam's day, we didn't have the right for women to vote and right. it was still appropriate and acceptable to own slaves. So the Constitution is an evolving document. So therefore, how solid and, and how much more than ceremonial is this oath when, in fact, you're pledging allegiance or defense of a floating document that's amorphously transformative all the time. Right. Well, you said you want to get away from philosophy, but I have one more sentence that I do need to lay on you to answer that question. <laughs> and that is the whole point of the Constitution, the founders' philosophy in the ages of the Internet and jet airplanes is we need to remember what I call the unchanging ground of changing experience. In other words, what has mm. not changed is what's the Declaration of Independence about the laws of nature and nature's God and the inalienable rights of human beings. Um, and uh, ultimately, when you talk about a living constitution, you're eventually pushing those ideas to the side. Uh, now, the, this, the more down-to-earth answer is this. One of the, one of the reasons in my pig book, I love calling them pig books too, the one reason it's a politically incorrect <laughs> look at the presidency is that almost all the modern evaluations of our presidents uh, celebrate and elevate the presidents who have expanded the power of the federal government and have blown out the limits in the Constitution. Uh, uh, you know, there's perfectly reasonable arguments about what certain clauses of the Constitution should mean in the age of the Internet. Uh, that's fine. Uh, uh, but, you know, our pre-modern presidents, as I call them, the 19th century presidents, uh, they all thought it was their first duty to talk about the Constitution and think about the constitutional ground of what they're go- doing. And most modern presidents don't even give that a second thought, with a few notable exceptions, of course. Mm. Okay, fascinating. And now, let me talk about this idea of, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself with Wilson. I want to do a little bit more by background before we decide, we explain to our friends why Wilson is the starting point for all of this. Right. I, I was particularly struck, Stephen, with your conversation about deportment, demeanor, 
the way in which one conducts themselves. And you put in a quote here from George Will that I thought was extremely impressive. Madison took the country into war, the British burned down his house, and he still didn't give a speech. I'm thinking with today's 24-7 media, how that would be almost next to impossible for a sitting president not to make a comment about just about everything under the sun. And yet you write that before the era of Wilson, there was a kind of, and I'm, I don't know what other word to use other than a kind of modesty that said, I'm not going to speak on that. That's not my job to do that. What happened? Where did the shift Right. Come? Well, I mean, you know, the rise of the mass media is a reasonable point. We, you know, have 24-7 media now. But, uh, yeah, the uh, pre-modern presidents, uh, you know, pre-20th century presidents didn't think it was their duty to speak all the time and, and, and enter political controversies. Most people don't know this, but one of the articles of impeachment against President Andrew Johnson uh, really, when you put it in the vernacular, was he talked too much and he made partisan speeches. And, and I actually think one problem with modern presidents is they do talk too much. And uh, someday a president is going to figure out that he might actually, he or she might actually have, be more popular with the American people if they talked less. And the one modern president who really did understand that instinctively was Dwight Eisenhower. I've got some quotes in the book from Eisenhower telling his aides who wanted him to give a speech as he said, paraphrasing roughly, he said, the last thing the American people want is to look at my face for 30 minutes in their living room all the time. And finally, <laughs> Given says, okay, I'll give a speech, but no more than 20 minutes. Well, now we have these State of the Union speeches that go on at almost Castro-esque length that you really can't grab, put your hands around in the theme. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know that, that presidents are well served by doing that. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let me fast forward now to Wilson so we can get into some of the facts that you write about in the book. There is a reason why you begin with Wilson and you don't begin with any other president. Explain to our friends why. Yeah, well, he's the first president who openly criticized the Constitution and said it was obsolete and that its principles uh, were obsolete. And, and he would have abandoned the Constitution if he'd had his own way. And he did something else that I want to talk about as a wife <clears throat> when we come back. A very interesting man. And as you point out, Stephen, it would have been rather challenging to be married to this man. I'll tell you what that is when we return. The book is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents, From Wilson to Obama. 1-877-548-3675. The Constitution says, Mr. President, Ms. President, your job to defend the Constitution of the United States. Do we still require that of our chief executive? We'll be back. This is In the Market. I'm your host, Janet Parshall, and we have the privilege of visiting with Dr. Stephen Hayward, who's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, also a fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and also a distinguished visiting professor at Ashland University. But he joins us today because he is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents from Wilson to Obama. All right. Woodrow Wilson, very interesting. Here's a quote that you put in of his. The president is at liberty, both in law and in conscience, to be as big a man as he can be. That's a little scary. Uh, yeah, Wilson was the theorist of uh, what we really see in a lot of presidents today, in both parties, I'm afraid to say. Uh, he's the guy who laid out the theory that the president ought to be the leader with a capital L. And, and he wrote some really very scary things, I think, at least they read scary today, about how the, the president ought to be a leader in the sense of leading the people to new and unknown destinations where they don't even know they want to go. In other words, he's supposed to see ahead of the people and take them there. And I, I think you can draw a straight line between that and 
modern presidents who talk about how they want to transform the country. That, that would have scared the heck out of the founders. They didn't want the president to be someone always trying to transform the country. They wanted someone to run the country and run the government effectively and efficiently, not always be trying to change human nature and change our institutions and change our social structures. And, and Wilson really is the theorist of all that and the first president to set out these grand transformational ambitions for the office. Mm. All right. So is it too simplistic to say that in modern parlance, they really would have seen the president more as a CEO? Uh, well, but in, in, in a more restrained sense, you know, an administrator, someone's going to run the government and defend the Constitution. I mean, it is a political office, so it's not quite like being just a business manager. Uh, but they didn't. But the founders didn't see politics as uh, well. I mean, we really saw what came after the founders, of course, uh, was you know very shortly the French Revolution and the radical totalitarian ideologies that really do want to transform human nature. They would have thought that was very dangerous. Uh, and to the extent that presidents take a little piece of that, that's uh, very unsound and ultimately undermines the Constitution. Mm. All right. You talked about politics. Let me take a little side trail here, but it's an important <laughs> one in your book, and that is the whole process. You talk about the Electoral College right. um, as being extremely important, but different and being diminished than what our founders thought originally, correct? What was their philosophy in this establishment of the Electoral College in the first place? Well, there are a couple parts to it. One is, is uh, you know, in the 1790s, there wasn't a lot of uh, mechanisms for uh, you know, holding popular elections like we're used to today. I mean, you want to have mm -hmm. elections, but a big country without communications, it's hard to have a direct popular election. So, and the other thing was is that they were a little hesitant to be electing a, uh, you know, a president for the whole country on a popular election basis. So they said, let's have an electoral college, which will be an intermediate body. It will probably be composed of eminent people that will be selected by leading citizens, and they will decide who will be a good president. Well, it never worked out that way, really, from the beginning. However, the, the structure of it, I think, has, shows the subtlety uh, of the, the founder's design, and sometimes you can use that cliche that they built better than they knew. Because what the Electoral College does now that we're a nation of 50 states is it requires that the winner have a geographically dispersed majority. And so, you know, you go back to the year 2000 when we had that train wreck in Florida. Uh, and, uh, you know, after the all the recounts were done, Bush wins Florida narrowly. But more importantly, he won majorities in, I think, 31 states. And that meant that he won majorities in more geographical areas and took in more interest than Al Gore did. Al Gore really won big majorities in two states, California and New York. You take those away, and Bush has the most votes. The point is, is that a winning presidential candidate has to take into account and appeal to a majority in rural areas, in small states, in states that have different interests from, say, New York or California. And really, it's a, it's a part of the genius of our small-R Republican system that we have a system that says we're not going to simply do things based on just the law of large numbers, and we're going to make sure that uh, just because there's more people in New York, that the people who live in Kansas or in South Dakota or Iowa uh, have a proportional say in how we are governed as well. And so that's why I think the Electoral College is an excellent institution. Mm. Uh, well, well, there is no vision that people perish, as the saying goes. Right. So in other words, they had no idea that we would grow to be a nation of 50 states. And yet inherent in what you just described, Stephen, which I think is brilliant, is the fact that they still really hung their hat on that peg of representation. You can't just represent dense population areas. You have to be able to represent the people in Kansas. You have to be able to represent the people in, in Arkansas. And this Electoral College affords that kind of a system to still be in place, correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just because there aren't many people who live in Kansas doesn't mean they don't have interests that are different and deserve significant protections from our system uh, so that, you know, you, people in New York can't gang up on them. 
All right. So in light of all of that fact, going back now to Wilson, this kind of, um, well, elitist, I can't think of a better word, attitude that he had. You write that he openly criticized the Constitution and he had a disdain for the American founding. Where did that come from? Uh, well, yeah, he, well, it came from, uh, you know, the American founders were students of especially the English Enlightenment, especially John Locke. Uh, Wilson had no use for Locke. He liked uh, Frederick Hegel, the German historicist philosopher, and that led him also, he's a big fan of Darwin. And, and Wilson wrote more than once, our Constitution ought to be Darwinian in its operation. And, mm. and not Newtonian, as he put it. You know, the, you know, Newton's laws of physics were sort of out, fading out of the time. Uh, and he also said he didn't like the separation of powers. I mean, this was central to the founders. He said, oh, the separation of powers get in the way of effective government. And then finally he said, yes, more and more of our government ought to be conducted by expert administrators, isolated and protected from uh, you know, public opinion and public pressure and elections. So he's also a theorist of modern bureaucracy. Wow. Wow. Parts of history you don't get to hear too much. By the way, the thing that caught my attention is you write, Wilson is the only president and maybe the only human being in history who contemplated writing up a formal constitution for his first marriage, setting out the rights and duties and separation of powers between husband and wife. I'll draw up a constitution in true legal form, and then we can make bylaws at our leisure as they become necessary. And Stephen adds the editorial comment. Must have been a fun guy. Yeah. Ladies, would you like that? one 877 There's a whole lot of presidents here. We're going to move off of Wilson to yet another individual who held that office. And we'll learn more about that person's perspective on the Constitution of these United States. Friends, this is Janet Parshall, and I want to take a moment to remind you that today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open. But I sure do appreciate your spending the hour with us. And thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the program. If you're just joining us, you're listening to In the Market. I am your host, Janet Parshall, and we're only halfway through a conversation that I think is absolutely fascinating. I love American history. And it's very interesting to know who we were and who we are and to see whether or not who we currently are in our approach toward the highest office in the land. Oh, I have to change that language. Not anymore. The presidency of the United States and what our founders thought about that office as well. Dr. Stephen Hayward is with us, fellow in law and economics at the American Enterprise Institute, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and also a distinguished visiting professor at Ashland University. The book, again, is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents from Wilson to Obama. Stephen, I, I should stop at this point before we take up another president and talk about the fact that you gave them a grade. What was the criteria for grading them. Right. Well, I decided to take the, the oath of office of protecting and defending the Constitution seriously. And so I had a three-part test. I mean, I mean, I did not evaluate them on their whole record, because, you know, then we can get into all kinds of things, uh, although I do talk about the highlights and lowlights of each particular president in my summaries. But there's a three-part criteria. One is, is did they have a constitutional philosophy that you can make out? Uh, and did it uh, respect or conform to the constitutional philosophy of the founders? And several modern presidents really had no constitutional philosophy at all, and others, like Wilson, I think, had an unsound one. Uh, the second one is, is did they take acts or you know, introduce measures that eroded the constitutional limits on government power and erode limited government? And then third, I judged them on their Supreme Court picks. I mean, the presidents shaped the judiciary wholly, 
And, you know, sometimes the longest lasting legacy of a president is the person that he puts on the Supreme Court. And most evaluations of the presidency maybe mention that, but skip over it and don't assign too much weight to it. Very interesting. And, drumroll please, what grade did you give Woodrow Wilson? <laughs> he got an F. <laughs> an <won>. F. <laughs> All right. Let me bring Mike from Alabama in at this point. Mike, thank you for joining us. Your thoughts on what we've said so far, please. Well, I'd, I'd have to agree with giving Woodrow Wilson an F because uh, he did a, several unconstitutional things. The main thing that come to mind right now is the fiscal mess we're in right now, or monetary mess, stems from Woodrow Wilson. And when he created or, or allowed to be created and brought into power, it was unconstitutional the Federal Reserve, and also unconstitutional at the same time, the federal income tax. Well, the the, you know, the federal income tax was brought in by a constitutional amendment. So, un, un, I mean, I don't like the income tax either, and, and it's you know it's very insidious in its effects. But at least they did amend the Constitution in the proper way to do that. Uh, the Federal Reserve is a little more complicated. Um, I, I, I think there's an argument that that a Federal Reserve system is constitutional because the constitu- you know it's Congress's power to regulate the the coinage and value of money. Maybe there's a gray area there. However, one of the things that's definitely wrong with the Federal Reserve, and I think Ron Paul is right about, is it's the way it's centralized. And if you go all the way back to 1913 when they debated in the Congress about the Federal Reserve, one of the original proposals was to have decentralized Federal Reserve banks around the country. And, you know, that gets into the weeds a bit, but that would have been a much better system than the one that we do have, where you centralize it really all in Washington and really all under one person. And, you know, if that person is not sound, and who possibly can be sound in a modern, complicated economy, you're just asking for disasters like the one we've seen in the last few years. Let me move next to a man who got a decidedly different grade, and that is Calvin Coolidge. I'll bet if you were to ask our audience right now, show of hands, how many of you know a lot about Calvin Coolidge? They wouldn't, but I certainly learned by reading your book. Here's a quote you put in. It is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country for him to know that he is not a great man. When a man begins to feel that he is the only one who can lead this republic, he is guilty of treason to the spirit of our institutions. Now, Stephen, based on what you've said thus far, that echoes, it seems to me, the sentiment of what the founders were saying way back when in the system of checks and balances. They wanted the person who had that executive office to understand that they were in a system of checks and balances and no greater than anyone else. Yeah, that's right. You know, one of the other things that Coolidge said is, I mean, he wasn't disdainful of great human beings. I mean, one of his other quotes uh, is that great men are the ambassadors of providence sent to us by God to reveal our better selves. Um, Mm. But I think what's interesting, I gave Coolidge an A+. I mean, he was the most constitutionally literate president of the 20th century. And, you know, the great liberal knock on him was that he was silent cow. Well, yes, he didn't talk a lot like, uh, you know, all the other presidents we know of lately. However, um, he was not silent at all. He's the last president who wrote all his own speeches. Uh, He, by the way, was fluent in Greek and Latin from his classical education at Amherst and used to read Greek and Latin texts for relaxation in the White House. Uh, And if you read his speeches, they're very thoughtful explications on the enduring principles of the founding, the permanence of the the principles of the American founding, not that they were subject. So, see, he argued against progressivism and implicitly was arguing against Woodrow Wilson. And so I think, you know, the liberals who like to knock him, they invented this theory of silent cow so we wouldn't pay attention to his arguments, because (laughs) I think really they were afraid of his arguments. So interesting. And a couple of other things, too. He, you know, very often when someone is running for public office, whether it's president or the House or the Senate, will say, well, what political experience does he or she bring to the game? Right. You point out that Coolidge was the 
only president who started out literally going up that political ladder, correct? He started the school board. Yeah, <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> and moved up from there to and, city council and then, uh, you know, state senate in Massachusetts and lieutenant governor, governor and president. And while John Adams and Thomas Jefferson may have died on the 4th of July, he was the only one born on the 4th of July who's held the office of president, right. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. You also, and it's the, it's the persona that also I find so interesting. You say that there's a theory that he may have suffered from clinical depression because of the death of his son. Yeah, boy, his, um, you know, your, your viewers, if they want to read a really good presidential memoir, read the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. It's fairly short. It's utterly unlike any other presidential memoir you'll ever read because it, it doesn't talk about, I did this and I did that in office. Uh, but there's this one heartrending passage where he talks about the death of his son and what a blow it was to him. And, and he concludes it by saying it, it costs a lot to be president in personal terms. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's really quite touching to read. Wow. All right. So a man who understood exactly what his responsibility was to the Constitution. Let me pick up on this idea because Mike had brought this up before. So let me talk about veto power. Why did the founders want the president to have the power of veto? Uh, well, you know, they, they wanted the president to be a check on one of the problems you have of popular legislatures, which is legislatures are often prey to transient opinion, uh, you know, sort of wild public enthusiasm to do something unsound. And you want the president to be a backstop against that kind of thing. Now, not, now they argued about whether the veto should be absolute. And they said, no, you don't want a president to have absolute power to stop legislative action. So that's why we have the feature that Congress can override it with a supermajority. So, again, lots of checks and balances in the way this works. Um, uh, now, most early presidents thought uh, the Constitution doesn't specify what you should use a veto for. They just gave that general power to a president. And most early presidents thought we should only veto things that we think are unconstitutional. Uh, but then, you know, as time went on, presidents decided, no, actually, we should also veto things that we think are unwise public policy measures. And in modern times, it's all flipped around now to where it, one of the low points I thought for President George W. Bush is when he signed the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law. And he said while he signed it, I actually think this bill's unconstitutional, but that's a matter for the Supreme Court to decide. And, and I'd say that's a huge Oops. disappointment. His, if he thinks yeah. something is unconstitutional, his constitutional view, duty is to veto it. And there is a remedy if Congress wants to vote by two-thirds vote to override it. But that was a terrible passing of the buck, and, uh, and it contributes to our constitutional illiteracy where we give in to judicial supremacy. And that was a disappointment of President Bush, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. and, and again, it goes back to the thesis. What is the primary thesis? In other words, if your job constitutionally is to hope, uphold and defend and protect that very document, right. and you deem something to be unconstitutional, your job description says you have to veto it. Exactly. I, 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 I just mind-boggling to me that uh, presidents don't understand this, especially Republican mm. presidents, but any president. Wow. All right. Another thing you brought up. And by the way, there's so much, Stephen, in this book. So I'm hop skipping and jumping, I realize. Sure. But I just was immersed in so many facts that I hadn't read before. There was some debate, you point out, that the founders originally had thought that perhaps the president might serve six years as opposed to four. Right. And that there was also conversation that they should serve out a lifetime. What <laughs> happened? Well, that was Hamilton's idea. He thought presidents should serve for life the way we do with judges. And he didn't have much support for that idea because that really did start to look like an elected king to people. Yes. Um, and then the, the argument was, well, uh, there are two other – there were several variations of the argument. One is, is that, well, Congress should select the president, not the people at all. And, you know, some governors were selected by state legislatures at the time of the founding. And the problem is those governors were always weak. They were always the creature of the legislature. I mean, imagine if um, – 
just today. So imagine if uh, you know, you know, Harry Reid and the Senate Democrats are picking the president, or you know, John Boehner and the House Republicans were picking a president. They pick somebody who would sort of answer to them. So they decided, no, the president needs to be an independent office. So that's an important point. And then the other one was as well. You know, eligible for re-election or not? Should it be just a single six-year term? An idea that's come up several times um, over the years. Um, I said no. The president should have a four-year term, you know, long but not too long, and should be eligible for re-election uh, because you don't want the president to be a lame duck, as we call it today. But you also want the people to have a chance to vote on that president's performance in something that amounts to a referendum. Hmm. Well, you, and you can't talk about term limits for the president without talking about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which I find very interesting. And you start out by saying that he re- originally ran to the right of Herbert F- Hoover in 1932. <laughs> he ran for balanced budget. And uh, uh, he, he did, however, and I talk about this a lot in the book, something that many biographers have skipped over. About three weeks before the election, he gave a very radical speech where, like Woodrow Wilson, he said, well... You know, the original Constitution was nice for back in the horse and buggy days of the of the 1800s, but nowadays we have to reinterpret in, uh, the Constitution, and we need to have an economic Bill of Rights. And it really was the philosophy of the New Deal laid out right before the election. So uh, it is hard to say we didn't know what we were going to get because he did surprise us a little bit. But yeah, he ran to criticize Hoover for being a big spender and high taxer. Wow. And, you know, uh, Stephen, I think for a lot of Americans, they got their tutorial on this whole concept of whether or not you subscribe to the doctrine of original intent in the Constitution, which is paramount to what you're writing about, or you see it as an elastic document. I think that came home for a lot of people during the confirmation hearings of Judge Robert Bork. That was a wake-up call to see exactly what that looks like with skin on. All right, I want to examine a little bit more of FDR, but you can imagine there's a whole lot of presidents from Wilson to Obama, and Dr. Stephen Hayward writes about them all in the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents. If you want to get a question in in our last segment, I welcome you, 1-877-548-3675. Also, can you check out In the Market with JanetParshall.org because you can visit the website for the Claremont Institute and the books on the right-hand side. We're discussing the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents from Woodrow Wilson to Barack Obama. It's absolutely fascinating. A look at presidents and their approach to the Constitution of the United States, which they're told to uphold and defend. Talk about a dichotomy, Stephen. And again, there's so many presidents here, and you write quite a bit about FDR. But you put in one quote from him where he said, As Commander-in-Chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces of the United States. My, wouldn't that be an interesting statement to hear today with all the controversy around (laughs) religious liberty and the military? But then you say that his lasting legacy, and this goes right to the heart of your point about the Constitution and their letter grade predicated on their approach toward the Supreme Court, his legacy, you say, is an unconstrained, your word, Supreme Court. Explain. Yeah, well, I mean, he, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court in his first term blocked some of his, uh, you know, crazy New Deal schemes. Uh, you know, a couple of decisions, by the way, were 9-0. They weren't even close, uh, unlike, you know, some of the 5-4 decisions we argue about today. And, and uh, so then in the second term, um, and actually, just to back up half a step, in the 36th election, there were some Democrats who said, we ought to put on our platform that we ought to call for constitutional amendments to give the federal government more power to manage the economy to deal with this crisis. And Roosevelt and his inner circle said, no, no, we don't need to do that. It's hard to amend the Constitution. 
didn't say anything about court packing. And right after the election's over, Roosevelt comes out and attacks the court. He doesn't just say, I want to add seats. That was his remedy. But he attacks the court in a most astonishing way, if you go back and read those speeches. And then he says, I want to add seats so I can pack, essentially pack the court and, and make the court bend to my will. And, you know, that went down very badly, even with his own party, and he lost that fight. Except it just showed how impatient he was. Because within three years, you had a number of deaths and retirements from the courts, and he ended up packing it anyway through the ordinary process of appointment. By the time Roosevelt died in '45, he had appointed all nine justices to the court. And a lot of them were very liberal, and the court completely changed directions in interpreting the Constitution. And we've been living with the consequences of that ever since, including uh, you know, the Roosevelt-era cases that are now the key issue in the Obamacare lawsuit that's before the Supreme Court in another few weeks. Mm, wow. All right. So going back as you graded the presidents, when you took a look at their attitude toward the Constitution, let me pick up on this idea of of the elasticity of the document versus the doctrine of original intent. You point out, by the way, that Wilson could be considered the father of the, quote, living document. If you start, I mean, uh, ideas have consequences. So if your first principle here is that you happen to believe that the document is elastic, if you're going to be president of the United States, isn't that going to have a dramatic impact on what you see as your role in the office of president? Well, you know, as I like to say, the idea of the living Constitution means that the written Constitution is dead. Uh, because you know, now what you say is, well, we can just sort of reinterpret these things to mean anything we want, pretty much. Now, there's, there's no question that there are many clauses in the Constitution that are ambiguous or require interpretation. Um, you know, a good one is the Fourth Amendment talks about how the government may not conduct an unreasonable search and seizure. What's unreasonable? Well, we have to use reason to figure that out, and that's why we've had thousands and thousands of court cases to talk about what's reasonable in an age when you have airplanes and uh, internet and wiretaps and things of that kind. But that's a very different thing from saying that, uh, you know, the Commerce Clause says we can regulate uh, to require people to buy health insurance because not buying health insurance is somehow engaging in interstate commerce, that's really quite a stretch, but that's what we've come to. Uh, and there's other things. You know, we now regulate people's private property, even though the Fifth Amendment has that clause about government shall not take private property without just compensation. Uh, and we've trampled all over that. And then that. you have the Kilo case. Yes, exactly. 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 A terrible decision. And, you know, there's, uh, there was a, a lot of doctrine and... Uh, uh, you know, that went into saying, oh, gosh, we really, essentially what they really say is, uh, they never say this directly, is we really don't need to pay attention to those inconvenient mm -hmm. clauses that constrain our power. <laughs> Checks and balances. Right. All right, let me go to Mike in Georgia. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Your question, please. Yeah, I, I mean, talking about checks and balances, they put a check on the president by limiting the two terms. Why can't they put a check on the, on the Congress by limiting their terms and get rid of yep. the career politicians? Good. That's a great question, Stephen. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, it used to be that the presidents were not limited to two terms. That was the custom that, uh, that you know, George Washington set by, by stepping down after two terms. And every president followed that into Roosevelt, and then we decided we didn't like that, so we, now we limit the president to two terms, but not everybody else. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, mean, I kind of like the idea. I've always voted for term limits when I lived out in California because I like the insult it gives to the political class. I'm not <laughs> sure it makes that much difference. I mean, California's had term limits for 20 years, and it has made no difference at all to California sliding into the abyss, it seems to me. I, I sad to say that, but, I mean, it couldn't hurt, but I don't think it's a, uh, a world-beating answer that will magically turn things or even significantly turn things around, uh, unfortunately. So picking up on Mike's question then, was it a good idea to make it a directive through the Constitution that a president may not serve more than two terms? Yeah, I'm not sure it was. Uh, I think that maybe might have been a mistake, uh, although, 
you know, I mentioned in the book that uh, there's no doubt that Bill Clinton would have run as many times as he possibly could have. And who knows, he might have even won a third term in the year 2000. Yeah, so, yeah. And there was <laughs> evidence to that end. Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. So let me, uh, so many questions here from so many callers. Paul in Illinois, let me get you into this discussion if I can, please. Yes, uh, I'd like to jump right into the discussion about the Electoral College. I think there's an, another very good advantage of the Electoral College that's often overlooked and wasn't mentioned at all, and I think that's that it kind of constrains the corruption. Uh, I'm calling you from Illinois. Our unofficial state motto is vote early, vote often, <laughs> right. and Crook County has a reputation for being able to turn out more dead voters than some of the smaller states have living people. Right. Now, yeah, that, that is an excellent point. I mean, that, that's among many I could go into if I was talking for the whole hour just about the Electoral College. But that's right. It, yes. The Electoral College does confine, uh, you know, elections are messy. Uh, there's no way to have a, never mind Illinois, which, you know, those problems. But even Florida shows that, you know, butterfly ballots and voting rolls and all the rest of that, you're always going to have a small margin of error in elections. Most of the time it doesn't matter. Once in a while it does matter. And what the Electoral College did in 2000 is it confined the problem to one state instead of the whole country. Imagine if we're trying to recount votes in the entire country in a close election like 1960 or 1968. That would be a nightmare. Mm. And I thank all of our callers and my apologies to those that were not able to get online. Stephen, the book is absolutely fascinating. And there's obviously more in the book than I could possibly cover in an hour. So I'd like to say thank you very much for reminding us again that uh, I think God really gave the founders some vision when they drafted this Constitution, the way it kind of holds us together rather than tears us apart. But it does begin with a profound presumption, and that is that that is the leveling field. And if you're going to be the chief operating officer, in a sense, of the United States, you have to work within the parameters of that Constitution. It's a fascinating read, Stephen, and I thank you for it. You can learn more by going to In the Market with JanetParshall.org. You can learn more about Dr. Stephen Hayward and all the great things he's written and where he can be read. And on the right-hand side, his latest book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents. My thanks to Dr. Stephen Hayward and to you, friends. We'll see you next time.